This is Latin Pulse, a weekly analysis of news and public affairs in Latin America. Brought to you in cooperation with American University's School of Communication in Washington, D.C. and Link TV. And now here's host, Rick Rockwell. Bienvenidos and welcome to Latin Pulse. This week we have a special program looking at the emerging genre of narco literature and what it says about the state of Mexican literature and the impact of the drug war. But first, Kurt Devine is here with our weekly review of news from around Latin America. President Barack Obama says he plans to sign comprehensive immigration reform into U.S. law within the next six months. The president's agenda includes better enforcement of immigration law, changing the administrative process, and a clear path to citizenship for the 9 million undocumented immigrants already living in the country. Obama spoke about reform this week in Las Vegas. We define ourselves as a nation of immigrants. That's who we are in our bones. The promise we see in those who come here from every corner of the globe, that's always been one of our greatest strengths. I'm here today because the time has come for common sense, comprehensive immigration reform. The time is now. A bipartisan group of U.S. senators known as the Gang of Eight announced similar goals for immigration reform this week. Experts say rates of human trafficking across the U.S.-Mexican border have significantly increased in the last decade. Police corruption in a vast network of criminal groups have allowed traffickers to coerce tens of thousands of migrants into prostitution and forced labor in both the U.S. and Mexico. The director of the anti-trafficking organization Free for Life in Acción, Cecilia Hilton Gomez, has encountered this crime firsthand. I worked on a case where these girls paid this guy to bring them here. Between the crossing of the borders, they split these sisters and they took one of the girls and said, we help you come to this country and now you owe us this much money that they make up. And then they start forcing this girl to prostitute and the reality is that this is modern day slavery and it's the buying and selling of human beings. Gomez says migrants become vulnerable to traffickers because of language barriers, lack of legal status, and a fear of deportation. The U.S. State Department identifies human trafficking as the fastest growing criminal enterprise in the world, generating about $31.6 billion a year. Police pulled 17 bodies out of a well in northern Mexico and identified 14 of them as musicians abducted by an armed group last week. Members of the band Combo Colombia went missing after playing a gig at a rural bar in Nuevo León. Ten gunmen reportedly entered the private party and forced them into vehicles, but one of the musicians escaped and later led police to the well. He said gunmen asked the band members if they belonged to an organized gang, then shot them when they refused to answer. An explosion killed 25 people and injured 101 at the headquarters of Mexico's state oil company, Pemex. The cause of the blast is under investigation, but investigators speculate that a gas boiler may have exploded in the Pemex building next to the headquarters tower in Mexico City. Emergency teams and search dogs worked to recover dozens of additional people trapped in the rubble. Officials expect the death toll to rise. A fire at a Brazilian nightclub left at least 234 people dead in the southern university city of Santa Maria. The KISS nightclub went up in flames after a band used fireworks that ignited the ceiling during their performance. 
Brazilian authorities arrested the lead singer of the band, a producer, and two of the club's owners, but the governor of Sao Paulo also ordered tighter inspections of all nightclubs and theaters in the region. Most of the victims died from smoke inhalation because the club had no fire detectors, sprinklers, or emergency exits. About 30,000 people gathered in Santa Maria to mourn the tragedy. A Guatemalan judge ruled to try former head of state Efrain Rios Montt for genocide and crimes against humanity. Prosecutors accused Rios Montt of ordering the killings of 1,700 Mayan people in the early 80s when he served as Guatemala's head of state. The judge also ordered former General Jose Rodriguez to stand trial for what prosecutors characterize as his connections to the mass killings. A United Nations commission estimates state security forces were responsible for the majority of the 200,000 deaths during Guatemala's civil conflict between 1960 and 1996. For Latin Pulse, I'm Kurt Devine. Thanks, Kurt. This week, one of Mexico's leading novelists, Elmer Mendoza, toured Washington, D.C. Literature critics call Mendoza the leading voice in an emerging genre called narco-literature, crime novels that focus on the violent drug war. Here's what Mendoza had to say about his work this week during a visit to American University. I am part of a group of writers who construct novels that are about hard topics, strong, dirty stories, in the language of the streets, covering the themes of narco-trafficking, justice, and their social impact. This week, we're devoting the remainder of the program to Mendoza's writings and narco-literature. And a note to parents, the discussion and readings will include adult themes. Professor Nuria Villanova of American University, the author of Border Texts, Writing Fiction from Northern Mexico, joins us to analyze this important work. His first novel, as a such as a novel, uh, is from 1999, and it's called The Lonely Killer, El Asesino Solitario. And he had written, he had been writing for two decades then and publishing, but in kind of minor, let's say, the local publishing houses. And then he becomes better known by publishing in, you know, in Mexico City, in Tusquets. And uh, I could say that he becomes more like a prominent figure in the last... 10 years or even five years, especially because of the, you know, his themes. He tackles the violence uh, connected to that drug trafficking, crime in that area. And that's probably what has made him become better known. Balas de Plata, his last novel, that, that seems to have catapulted him more so than the earlier work? Well, just because I think it's mainly because he won a prize, an important prize by Tusquets. This is a major um, publishing house for fiction writing in Spanish. And that, you know, that award, that prize gave him a lot of popularity. Uh, what this is called is narco-literature as a subgenre, is it not? Is. I find I'm very kind of doubtful and a bit skeptical about all these categories, you see, because they tend to really minimize and just um, kind of schematize a lot what the works are about. So say that thematically he's 
tackling that issue of, of the violence in the uh, in the area and uh, drug trafficking and so on. So his themes become the categorization of his literature. And of course, his works have mar- much more than that. They have a whole exploration, you know, of the language, of, you know, how to develop kind of aesthetics that go beyond um, what has been traditionally done. Maybe he wants to encompass his themes with different language. So what I'm saying is that, unfortunately, I think it sometimes is kind of, it's a bit, it hinders the work of the writer when you put that kind of labels there. But there, the label is there, and we have a precedent for that, which is in Colombia, that narco literatura, the narco literature, became really well known in Colombia first. It's a bit different from what's going on in Mexico, in the sense that uh, I think in, in the Colombia case, the the names of the characters and so on are kind of more realistic, are kind of. But of course, they had Pablo Escobar, and that was a prominent figure, so they could kind of develop on that. And now an excerpt from Elmer Mendoza's. Balas de Plata. He called on her in her little office in Gray, Toledo. On the wall hung three peeling diplomas that Angelita cleaned without devotion and a calendar from the previous year. He informed her of his talk with Laura Frias, Paola's suicide, and the silver bullet. I've never heard of someone who is killed with a silver bullet, she said. Never seen vampire movies, he asked. No, she responded. Well, he said, you should see them, given the call Paula Rodriguez made the day before she died. He's doing some experimental things with how he's writing, and his point of view is very different. Not necessarily what you would always see in a crime novel or a suspense novel. I think what he's doing, basically, to me at least, is that he's um, bringing the kind of language from soap operas, from everyday life, in such a blatant and realistic way that the novel, at least what I've read, you know, and what I know, becomes so visual that it kind of, you know, kind of makes a a different perspective on the whole thing. Um, And also... I think basically that would be, and maybe also the way he develops the plot is more fragmented, but uh, I, I wouldn't dare to say that uh, none other kind of detectivist writing or crime writers have done that before. I wouldn't dare to go that far because I think that that probably has been done, but in a different in different ways. So basically, the, it's interesting the way he tackles or he expresses violence because it would seem that he's not so violent, he's not so aggressive, but being more subtle, being more kind of suggested, that violence becomes even worse for the, you know, for the reader because it's there and it's it's been put forward in a in a sophisticated way somehow. I, I'm glad you brought in visualization yes. and the cinematics of the books because he uses a different point of view and a different sort of narration than the traditional narration. Does he not? I think so. I yes and. Uh, 
to my understanding, is because of that. Is is just bringing all this visualization, and that's why. Um, and it takes. I I don't know whether you had that experience as well, but it takes the reader by surprise sometimes because you are reading, you know, like you are having your own pace of the reading, your own rhythm, and all of a sudden he brings that horrible scene there as if you were watching really uh, uh, watching something which is terrible and you can hardly bear it and it's just there you see so uh, I think that's what he's doing he's playing a lot with the language it seems that the language is plain highly realistic very familiar colloquial language and yet the work involved in produ- producing that effect is huge, you see. So I'm I'm interested in the fact that, that much of, at least, Balas de Plata reads as a stream of consciousness. I'm inside the narrator's head in many different ways, which is a different way to approach this genre. And I think this goes to what you were talking about, that this transcends the genre. It's interesting because now I... Ha- I, I, I was lucky enough to have the chance to have him yesterday with me in my class with the students. And, you know, we couldn't go into certain things that I would have asked him because it was very much the class was developing around one of his short stories. But he mentioned something that now you've just you've just, you know, made me realize what's going on. Maybe he said that he had read uh, Ulysses of you know, by Joyce, and that had made him that I just I hadn't thought about it until you mentioned the stream of consciousness. Now, he said to the students yesterday that that had made a huge impact on him. And now that you've just said it, I just realized that that did probably along with everything else. The guy on the bike and Beatrice were talking in bed after making love. They smoked marijuana and drank cold beer that they pulled out of a small green cooler. They were in a motel. I don't feel well, he murmured after a puff of a newly forged blunt. Well, I do, she said. I finally felt moved from above. You have no idea of the hell that was living with her. She was a hoarder of love, of money, ideas, opportunities. We'll hear more from Mendoza's work and about Mexican narco literature in a moment. When we come back, an expert on crime fiction joins us from Dallas. Stay with us. I want to finish school and then go to college to be able to graduate and have the future my parents couldn't have because I know that going to college is the best thing I can do for my future. The words of a parent help to build the future of a child. The Hispanic Scholarship Fund has the information to help your kids go to college. Visit yourwordstoday.org or call 1-877-HSF-8711. Sponsored by the Hispanic Scholarship Fund and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Latin Pulse. Author Jeff Siegel joins our discussion via Skype from Dallas. Siegel is the author of the book, The American Detective and Illustrated History, where he credits Mexican authors with picking up the reins and advancing modern hard-boiled fiction. I would argue that the Mexican uh, novelists and writers who've taken the traditional American hard-boiled detective have gone further with that concept than most American uh, novelists have done over the last 20 years. I think they've taken it in new and interesting directions. In this country, 
with a few minor exceptions, it's actually kind of stagnated. And I, I know that's certainly not the case in Mexico. Well, most of this program we've been talking about Elmer Mendoza, and his work has not been translated to English yet, but uh, one might say that his, uh, his last book is more or less uh, Sam Spade Meets the Godfather. You know, and, and he's a really interesting, a really interesting example of, of what I'm talking about. Um, in that he writes in the vernacular, uh, he writes about an honest man in a corrupt system. And if you go back and look at the, the great American hard-boiled detectives and, and their creators, Dashiell Hammett, Raymond Chandler, that was the basis of what these guys were writing on. And Chandler's famous for saying that, that Hammett took, uh, uh, took the mystery novel and put it where it belonged, on the street. But you mentioned some other Mexican authors, and so we'd be remiss if we didn't mention some other names. What, what are some of the recommendations that you have? Well, I think one of the first and the best is uh, uh, Paco Ignacio Taibo uh, and the series with uh, Hector Balascor and Shane, his uh, Basque Mexican, um, which I think maybe set the example uh, for a lot, of, uh, a lot of Mexican writers uh, to follow. And, and what I've also noticed, Rick, besides the, the vernacular, which is really important, um, is that these, are, these novels are not knockoffs of what Americans, of what writers up north are doing. These are truly Mexican in originality, working in Mexican culture, uh, working in uh, that Spanish style of, of literature. The idea of, you know, which started with magical realism, the idea that it's it's the idea that things don't always happen in a linear fashion, which is a very Anglo uh, sort of approach to literature. Well, since we're talking about Paco Ignacio Taibo II, um, any specific books of his and any specific examples that that you'd like to to talk about that that illustrate this? Oh, I think I think any of any of, of Taibo's books are are worthwhile, um, and like as you noted, most of them have been translated into English. Uh, He'll talk about uh, the Mexican Revolution. Uh, he'll talk about um, trying to get the plumbing fixed. Um, those those ordinary things that are important to someone living in Mexico City. There's it's it's just it's a really amazing way in which he takes a style and adapts it and makes it his own. His novels certainly do make Mexico City a, a full character often in, in what he's talking about. And so, therefore, it also e evokes Hammett and others who have made cities um, so much of the milieu of what, of what they write. If you talk about Chandler, you're talking about Los Angeles. Los Angeles is a character. If you're talking about Hammett, San Francisco is a character. One of the things I think that's, that's been lacking, especially north of the border, in hard-boiled fiction, is the the city's not it could be it could be taking place almost anywhere, um, and that's that's not something that that's not something that, that that's good. His only way to survive was to accept the chaos and become one with it. Take yourself lightly, but the city seriously. Mexico City, that porcupine filled with quills and soft wrinkles. Damn, he was in love with this place. Another impossible love on his list. From Paco Ignacio Taibo II's No Happy Ending. <laughs> 
the whole idea of, of the, the, the narco lifestyle, the music, um, and so forth. If you go back and look at hard-boiled detective fiction in the 20s and 30s, you saw the same thing. The idolization of gangsters, that Al Capone ran soup kitchens. The, the, once again, the contradiction, because at the heart of hard-boiled crime fiction is the contradiction. And now another excerpt from Elmer Mendoza's Palas de Plata, Silver Bullets. Marcelo Valdez paced his garden talking on a cell phone. Below his hillside home, Culican looked like a tiger claw. Three guards remained alert and surreptitiously watched his movements. He spoke into the phone. I'm disappointed in the worst way. You exhaust me. How dare you associate with a jerk like the gringo for a few pesos? Do not you realize the damage you do to me? The damage you do to my organization? And now Professor Villanova rejoins the conversation about Mendoza's work and influences. Most of his works, the setting or the, you know, the kind of uh, background, either city or the desert, you know, um, it reminds me of other Mexican writers like Rufo, for instance. But of course, the way Juan Rufo approaches it is just so completely different. But I, I wonder, uh, I did quite a lot of work on Jesus Gardea, who is a writer from Chihuahua. And he would be more that kind of writer, if you want to call it that way, Rufiano. So kind of the, the kind of solitude, isolation of those rural areas and uh, deserts on the north impacted the work in such a way that his prose, his narrative is almost dry, is full of that kind of metaphors of the desert. And I thought, well, what he's doing is just the opposite. He's feeling that, you know, isolated, solitary, and sometimes, you know, very kind of discouraging place. It can be encouraging, but I'm just putting it that way. Um, with action and a lot of words and people and everything. See, I wondered if my feeling was that in reading his work, he evokes the metropolitan part of Sinaloa, the the urban part of Sinaloa, as a separate character in how he approaches these things. And to me, filling it that much is more of an urban definitely. sense. Yes, definitely. And yet the desert is always present as well. At least maybe not so much maybe in, Bal- in Balas de Plata, but in many shorter stories and other places. So, yes, yes, I, I agree. And this is follows a whole Latin American tradition, and not only Latin American, but, you know, I mean, we could even think about Faulkner and other authors, that the, the space is so powerful, you know. And in Latin American literature, you have the creation of, you know, a town or a village, Comala, um, Macondo, you know, that has really become characters in the works of um, Rufo García Márquez and you name it. Huh? In, in this case, for Mendoza, he's he's evoking his hometown, though. Definitely. I think so. I mean, what is very interesting, um, at an interview that um, he, you know, he gave some time ago, he said something that made me think a lot. He said, I wasn't looking for 
you know, I was not looking for the thematic territory of my works. Those thematic territories, you know, got me. They looked for me and they got me. So if he had, he couldn't avoid to talk about what he's talking from the perspective and the location, the locus where he is. So in a way, what happens is that the the whole context, the whole environment is so powerful in many ways that it does permeate his life and his work somehow, you know. And that's something that we see. Uh, we see that a lot in other um, writers from the area, not only him. So that's kind of a characteristic, I would say, of the border, how the border as a conflictive place, as a very dynamic place, the movement, all the, you know, everything going on, such a, a place where it's a place of migration as well, of transit, does kind of permeate those works in a very powerful way. Since we're talking about the mechanics of the literature, one of the things that sets Mendoza apart is not just his idea of reality, but also the fact that the his books are written in, in a stream of consciousness style, almost as if you're in the head of the central character. Um, and, and even the use of quotations is, is not um, in dialogue, is, is as if you're in someone's head rather than listening in a room. So he, he takes a very different approach. Um, do, do we see these sorts of uh, approaches as, as something that, that the Mexicans are actually creating rather than others in the genre? Yeah, I think that's, yeah, I, I think that's a very, very, very distinctive south of the border development. Um, and let's see, I'll try to say this as nicely as possible. Um, but in popular fiction in the United States, especially given the economic turmoil the publishing industry is going through, I can't imagine a major American publisher allowing um, a writer in a popular form like crime fiction to do something as experimental um, as, quote, without quotation marks. Do you, do you feel that, that as a culture we are now too centered on this drug war and crime? Um, I think... I don't know. My feeling is that he's always written about this from the very beginning, the late 70s. He was talking about violence at that moment. And, you know, but because now the the problem has spread out in such a way. And the last six years, um, you know, in Mexico politics, this has been so much at the center of not only domestic issues, but also you know, spreading out to international concern, that now it's like, okay, this issue um, being part of art and literature has become important and famous. So, but I I think his work was already very interesting 30 years ago. And, no, you know, and, and it, wouldn't, it wouldn't be um, published in the same way it is now. To be honest to you, when I, when I think about Mendoza, Maybe it's a good job that probably the drug traffickers don't read that much. I don't know. Or maybe they don't read that kind of books because I don't think he could kind of be in trouble there. 
But this also may explain the difference between his approach to narco literature and the Colombian approach. Yes. And that it's not yeah, as right. personal. You're right. Yeah, that could explain. Yeah, that could explain. And uh, I just think that what is important is to see also how much these kind of works will prevail. Because uh, I think that when you have a good piece of uh, narrative, literature, fiction, writing, um, it doesn't matter the theme, really. I mean, you have very important work about the, the, the Mexican Revolution, which is another peak moment where, you know, the novel gets into that and you have all these kind of prevailing novels from the revolution. I mean, in the case of Spain, you have amazing poetry about the civil war. So what is really powerful when you have something more than just tackling a theme, then you have a world that prevails. And I believe his work will prevail because it does have this expression of the language and of the aesthetics of the narrative in a powerful way. Our guest today, Professor Nuria Villanova, the author of Border Texts, Writing Fiction from Northern Mexico, and Jeff Siegel, the author of The American Detective and Illustrated History. Elmer Mendoza's latest novel is called Nombre del Perro, Name of the Dog, and it was released late last year. Latin Pulse is available on the web and via iTunes. To see the Latin Pulse archives of video programs on Latin America, you can check out Link TV's website, www.linktv, all one word, .org, and then forward slash Latin Pulse, also all one word. That's www.linktv.org, forward slash Latin Pulse. If you'd like to comment on this week's program, you may leave us a message online via SoundCloud or on Facebook, or you can write us via email. You can find us at latinpulse at gmx.com. That's Latin Pulse, all one word, at gmx.com. Thank you for joining us this week on Latin Pulse. For our entire team, associate producer Kurt Devine and announcer Victor Kilo, I'm Rick Rockwell. Escuchenos otra vez. Gracias por su tiempo. Latin Pulse is produced in Washington, D.C. at American University's School of Communication and with the support of Link TV. Theme music provided by Link TV and additional music from Canary Productions and Bath Time Music Publishing. This program is copyright 2013, Las Rocas Productions.